0: Happy ten anniversary! What? Ten week anniversary. It's episode ten.
1: This is episode eleven.
0: Wait, what? <laughs> episode ten was last week. We missed our ten week anniversary. Yeah. Ten week week anniversary. Ten week week
1: anniversary. <laughs> yeah, we did.
0: Hello and welcome to the Hobby Shelf. This is a podcast where we talk about books board games, and just really anything we're interested in. This is episode 11, and today we're talking about our favorite book tropes and game mechanics.
1: I'm Brenna, a freelance editor and an avid reader.
0: And I'm Oren, a fake English major with a concentration in board games. Nice. <laughs> Happy 11th, anniversary.
1: <laughs> Thanks.
0: You're welcome. Just a quick announcement before we get into the episode today, we are recording in a separate space today, so um, if anything does sound off, we apologize, but we hope you enjoy the episode anyways.
1: What have you been playing lately?
0: I have been playing...
1: Did you forget the question again? We
0: played it last night.
1: Yeah, we played Quirkle.
0: Quirkle! And we also played, why can I not remember this, Clank in space. Yee. Yeah. Two good games. Quirkle, very light, very fun For those of you who have never heard of Quirkle before, essentially imagine you mixed Scrabble and...
1: I don't even know. Basically what you have to do... Sudoku. You have to match shapes and colors together without repeating anything in the row, and you kind of put them together like a crossword.
0: Yeah. So you take the non-repeating aspect of Sudoku, you take the word-making aspect of uh, Scrabble. Scrabble, and then you just replace all the letters with colors and shapes. Yep. We have Quirkle. Mm-hmm. Good game, really easy, really good fun for a lot of people.
1: And we have talked about Clank in Space before. It's fun. It's a deck builder where you have to go in and steal a thing from a robot guy and then get out of the ship before you die.
0: Nice. Great synopsis. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> what have you been reading lately? Love of My Life? Aww. <laughs> Why? I'm sorry. <laughs> what have you been reading lately?
1: So I finished Women of the Dunes, which I had just started reading when we recorded last episode. It is about a girl named Libby Snow, who is an archaeologist, and she goes to Ullans in Scotland to dig up a mound where they think there might be a burial from, like, Viking times. Mm-hmm. And she has a personal connection to the story because her great-grandmother... No, her, gra- her grandmother's grandmother lived on the estate where this place is and told her this legend of this girl named Ula and a monk named Audren. And she wants to know, she's trying to piece together what is true of the legend and also what is true from her grandmother's lifetime. Hmm. So the story kind of jumps between Ula and Audren's story and Libby's story in the present and Ellen's story in the middle. (laughs) Hmm. So, yeah, I liked the history aspect of it a lot. Okay, okay. And I really liked the uh, the setting as well because, as we know, I love Scotland. But I couldn't really get attached to the characters. Okay. Like, I kind of had to push myself through it a little bit because I didn't really care. Like, the main guy, to me, was really forceful and kind of got on my nerves. Mm. But my best friend read this book and loved it, so, I don't know. We have very different tastes sometimes. Yeah. But it is worth a read, especially for the atmosphere and the history, if you like history.
0: What was that one called
1: again? Women of the Dunes. Women of the Dunes. By Sarah Main.
0: I remember this book, if only for the the cover.
1: Oh, it's so pretty.
0: Because you are like, I think I've been there in Scotland.
1: (laughs) Yep. And then I read a book of poetry, which is a little bit out of my comfort zone. I read a book of poetry called The Truth About Magic by a poet named Atticus. And I'm going to be honest, I read this because I've seen a lot of good reviews about it, and I saw it in like a newsletter that I get. But I read it in half an hour, and I did not find anything special about it at all. I gave it two stars. The poems were just kind of bland. They were like stock inspirational poems about love, and they weren't particularly deep.
0: I didn't read this book. So do not take my review up front. I looked at this book for maybe a minute, you know, reading through it, not reading everything, but you know, just kind of skimming through. This book is like inspirational white mom quotes, you know, (laughs) like with pictures of, you know, camp, sometimes naked ladies, sometimes not naked ladies. There
1: are pictures in there and like, yeah, sure, they're pretty, but... They're like stock advertising photos. Like, there's just nothing diverse or insightful.
0: You ever, like, you know when, like, you're, you know when your mom tries really hard to be artsy?
1: (laughs) Is that what you think this is like?
0: Yeah, you know, like, it feels very suburban mom.
1: Sure, except it's written by a guy.
0: Which is weird.
1: (laughs) And then I just started The Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern. Which I'm really enjoying so far. I can't give a review on it because I'm not very far in, but I'm really liking it.
0: Yes. I also just started The Ninth House by Leigh Bardugo.
1: Leigh Bardugo. Leigh
0: Bardugo. Leigh Bardugo. Leigh Bardugo. <laughs> Anyways, I started The Ninth House. Uh, this is our buddy read, so I have, I'm on a little bit of a limited timeline to read this because... We only have like two or three weeks with it from the library. So I'm going to finish that book. Then Brenna's going to read that book. And then we're going to possibly do a review on that in the future.
1: Yeah, I'm excited for that to see what you think.
0: Yeah, uh, so far I'm enjoying it. It is very intriguing and deals with some pretty... Um, so far, like I've only really read the first and first chapter and a half. And it is very still setting the tone. It's definitely intriguing. As I ramble about that book for a minute and say basically nothing, so.
1: (laughs) So let's get into what we're actually talking about today.
0: Yes. Today we are talking about our favorite mechanics and our favorite book tropes. Mm -hmm. So how do you want to begin? Do you want to do a book trope first or would you like to do a mechanic first?
1: Let's start with a mechanic.
0: Perfect. Tell me your favorite mechanic or one of your favorite mechanics.
1: Okay, so I only wrote down uh, three so I don't have a lot of mechanics to talk about. But the first one, and I've, I've mentioned a couple of these on the podcast before. Um, my all-time favorite mechanic is work replacement. Mm-hmm. So that is when you have a meeple and you place it somewhere on the board and then you get resources in return for that placement. And generally you have to manage these resources because you're trying to gather them to build a specific thing or to use them to pay for something. Yep. And I... I don't know, I find it just really satisfying to place things on the board and then get something back. And I like the strategy of figuring out where to place it and in what order to place it and then how you're gonna use those resources. I find that interesting.
0: Yeah, worker placement worker placement games are fun. I definitely I like these games as well. It always it's cool to me, like I guess the best way to describe it is imagine if everyone had access to the same pool of resources. Just like in well, I'm gonna get real economic-y on you guys, but like
1: Economicy.
0: Yeah. But just like in the real world, say there's like fish in the in a pond, right? Everyone can go and fish the pond. But say the person who gets there first, they fish a bunch of the pond. Therefore there's less resources later. Or more accurately, in this one, no one else can go to that spot in that round usually. These types of games are fun because you have to it's all about trade-offs. You're trying to decide which order and how you do it. And it's all because there's a communal set of resources that are available to anyone. But if you send your worker there first, you block other people out generally. There are variations of this where you don't actually block people out or where the downside of people going to a space that you've already gone to is they actually bump you out and you then get a free another action sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a really good game. What it's a good game. It's or really a good good, really good mechanic. mechanic. What has, can you think of one of your favorite games that employs this mechanic?
1: Yeah, Charterstone.
0: Charterstone.
1: Charterstone mm-hmm. is a legacy game made by Stonemeyer Games. And essentially, each of you has a charter. So the board is divided into six. And then you get different buildings that you can build. And there are six main buildings you can always use in the center. And you've got a limited number of meeples that you then have to place. And like we've been talking about, you use those resources to build other buildings or to use other buildings on the board. Mm-hmm. It's really fun. And I like that one because the goals were constantly shifting since it was a legacy game. Yeah. And I like the the challenge of trying to meet a new goal every time we played.
0: Yeah. I'm honestly shocked that you didn't say Lords of Waterdeep.
1: That was the other is... one that's on my list.
0: Yeah, that one's the first... Um worker placement, I think I really introduced you to. Yeah, Um,
1: I do like that one a lot as well.
0: Lords of Waterdeep, for those of you who are have never heard of it before, it's a worker placement game. So we're talking about that mechanic. Essentially, the way it works, though, is you place your workers out and you're trying to essentially recruit workers in the form of small cubes with your agents who are your actual workers to use those agent or those cubes to send them out on missions to complete quests. Um,
1: It's basically you collect cubes and then you use the cubes to complete a card. Yeah. And try and get points by completing as many cards as you can and fulfilling your kind of bonus goals and things like that.
0: Yeah. And there's really cool strategies where you can chain getting new cards because you don't get the cards for free. You actually have to spend a turn sending your worker there in order to get cards, but you can get cards that will give you new cards or you can get cards that will.
1: And what's the theme of Lords of Waterdeep is just kind of like a merchant kind of thing, right? Like it's not Vikings. <laughs> the Champions of Midgard is Vikings.
0: Champions of Midgard is Vikings. Um, Wow, we're mentioning a lot of worker placement games now. <laughs> um, Champions of Midgard is Vikings. They actually just released a second game called Reavers of Midgard which is the sequel to that game.
1: But what's Lords of Waterdeep? That's what I'm asking.
0: Oh, Lords of Waterdeep is um actually D&D set. Waterdeep is actually a town in really? the... Yes, Waterdeep is actually a major city in the Forgotten Realms setting.
1: I didn't know that. Yeah.
0: Um, That's so cool. In D&D lore. And it is famously known for its kind of grimy... <laughs> gross port town life not like gross but like it's very you know gritty that's hilarious speaking of tropes this is a trope that i love we're actually just going to segue right into it right now okay um the trope of you know the the salty port city where anything can happen you know it's like it's like the american dream except it's the salty port city dream you
1: like like ketterdam is what you're talking about
0: and like piratey adventures start here and like this This is
1: why you need to read the lies of lock lamora because Mm -hmm. it's just like that
0: yeah i'm also thinking like black sails great show like what's the sound uh what's the name of the town that Uh, they have Nassau, Nassau. Yeah. Port Nassau. Like it's kind of just like the idea that it's not the American dream, but it's similar to it. It's like, it's like a piratey American dream. It's
1: like you start from the bottom and then work your way to the top. You try and get rich.
0: This is definitely a trope of mine that I love. Like the idea that a location or more specifically, yeah, a location that kind of makes people feel like they can really, yeah, start with nothing, but they have everywhere, nowhere but up to go, I guess.
1: I actually really like that too. I didn't. That's not on my list, but I agree. That's
0: yeah. That one. That's was a not, good setting trope. That one was not on my list at all either. But I was just. We were talking about water deep and. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Do you want to talk about a favorite mechanic?
0: Sure. Yeah, I'll talk about a mechanic. Um, one of my favorite mechanics are the building mechanics, and what I mean by that are deck or bag or pool building mechanics. And so the way that this kind of works is. The reason why there's three things in front of the building part is you're often collecting things that become your pool of resources. So whereas in worker placement, for example, if there's a communal set of actions, right, that everyone has access to, and then everyone has to be the first one to get to those things in order to get those or get those resources, that action, whatever the thing is, they are trying to beat out the other players to be the first one to put their pawn there. To be able to take these resources. Mm-hmm. The pool bag or deck building mechanic works as in usually there is a, a pool of actions that are available to everyone, but instead of putting a, or actions, resources sometimes, yeah, actions or resources usually that are available to everyone. And then you actually pay to buy them and add them to your own personal pool of actions. So for example, I'll just explain deck building because I think it's the one that makes the most sense.
1: And deck building is actually also on my favorite mechanic list. Yeah,
0: yeah. So deck building works that, for example, say you have a deck of cards, say it's 10 cards, and half of those cards give you the ability to buy new cards. And then the other half of those cards give you some random other kind of ability. What you would do is you would generally draw a number of cards from your deck and then play them all out. The cards that allow you to buy new cards, you'd actually use to spend to buy a new card, an 11th card, and add it straight to your deck. Once it's in your deck, you now have the ability to get that card. Say it's a card that instead of giving you just one ability to purchase, it gives you three ability to purchase. At that point, uh, your deck is more efficient. Now you have better stuff that you can use. And so this really, I love this because it really makes you feel like you actually build something like I've talked about it on this podcast. I love engine building. Um, I love the I love the feeling that I'm making a change to something.
1: Yeah, I like that too.
0: And I think that Another way to explain this, and maybe for those of you who understand deck building but are having a hard time understanding what pool building or something else like that looks like, I'm actually going to talk about one of my favorite games of all time, which is... Dice Forge, which, like, I'm, I love dice rolling in the right games. I don't like dice rolling in games where there's a lot of grand strategy and then randomness can really ruin you.
1: pretty sure you say this literally every time I talk about Dice Forge. I know, I know, I know.
0: I have just had some scarring moments with dice. Anyways, but Dice Forge is actually, it involves rolling, but it is also a pool building game because you're adding specific faces to your dice. You are building a pool of dice faces. That you have access to throughout the game. Yeah. Sorry for constantly saying that I like dice, but not all dice. I don't know. I just feel, (laughs) I feel the need to make it clear because there, I don't know. There are definitely some games that are very, very dice heavy and I do not enjoy them.
1: Yeah. So the game that we talked about at the beginning of this episode, or that we mentioned, I guess, because we've talked about it before, Clank in Space, is a deck builder because you have to buy cards that give you abilities to help you move across the board and steal whatever item you're trying to steal. Yeah, And you can also get rid of cards to try and make your deck more efficient. efficient. So it's really fun. I like deck building a lot.
0: Yeah. Quick name drop. We're not going to explain all these games, but if you're really interested in the deck building or pool building uh, aspect, check out Dominion. I think it's if you are into deck building, you should know what Dominion is. Definitely check it out. Legendary is a Marvel one. So if you like comic books.
1: Oh, Legendary is really fun.
0: Legendary is very fun. It's cooperative. You work together to beat up, for example, uh, Thanos and overcome his goals. Yeah. So definitely check those out. Those are some really fun games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is your next trope?
1: Okay, my trope, we haven't really mentioned You brought one up by accident, kind of.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) No,
1: it's okay. One of my favorite book tropes is when older people have their lives changed by a younger person in their life. Mm -hmm. And generally, these books are like, it's like an older, grumpy person who's really cynical, and then a young person comes into their life and makes it better and helps them feel joy again. And I really like that trope. There are a couple of books that I've read recently that have this trope. One of them is called The Storied Life of A.J. Fickrey by Gabrielle Zevin. This is about a man named A.J. who lives on Alice Island. His wife recently died. His bookstore is falling apart. And at the very beginning of the book, his most prized possession, which is a book, gets stolen. So he's like down in the dumps. Like he is not having a good time at all. And then one day someone like drops a toddler in his store... or, like, a baby even, like, very, very young child in his store with a note just saying, I know you'll take good care of her, and then just, like, leaves. (laughs) So (laughs) he ends up raising this girl, and she changes his life, like, he gets it back together, and because he becomes a father out of the blue. Yeah. But I love it because it's, like, this... This older man who he's not even older he's like middle aged who everything's been going wrong for him and then suddenly everything changes because he's got a child.
0: Does it is, does it change for him because he kind of like rediscovers what it means to be? human again through that childhood interaction? There's also,
1: there's also like a girl, like a love interest in the book that kind of helps him along the way. But I really think it's the child and him becoming responsible and having to get involved in life again to take care of this kid and getting attached to the kid and learning how to take care of a kid that kind of brings him back to life.
0: That seems like a really good um, metaphorical or allegorical story, just, you know, or even just like a good representation of feeling disenchanted with life. But then I guess specifically the act of like having to get out there and do something and then Mm -hmm. feeling better. Do you know what I mean? Like taking, taking, not taking charge of your life, but I guess being the player in your life, not the. Becoming more active
1: and not being passive anymore. Yeah. 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 And then there's another book that's very similar called Harry's Trees by John Cohen. I read this one recently as well. This is about a man named Harry Crane whose wife dies unexpectedly and he thinks it's his fault because he's been wanting a lottery ticket all his life and then he gets a bunch of money out of her death so in a way it's like he won the lottery but his wife had to die in the process. So he feels terrible for this and he goes into a forest Basically, in order to commit suicide, and ends up running into this little girl named Oriana. And Oriana's father died, and she thinks that Harry is like the key to getting her father back. So, Harry and Oriana end up kind of like conspiring together. They bond over this book from a, a really old library called the Grum's Ledger,
0: hmm.
1: and they like kind of put together it's like they use fairy tales to enact their own fairy tale. Yeah. And it brings him back to life as well and also helps her cope with the loss of her father.
0: Yeah. You know, you talking about this, I didn't realize that this was one of your favorite tropes, but you talking about this, I'm starting to realize a little bit more why you like God of War so much. Because God of War actually has something similar to this, where like Kratos, who is the God of War and he's in all the other series, like in this game, part of the story and part of the thing that is driving the entire story is his child like he he has and we don't even know if it's his child we just yeah. know that he is with a child and that he's trying to be that kind of like he's trying to be a father but at the same time he's like i am so ptsd and war torn <laughs> that i i don't know how to be a father he doesn't know how to be soft and it's really cool to see that it's actually It really gives Kratos' character, a character who who before really doesn't have a lot of depth. Sorry, he's like, he's a lot of death. Not a a lot of depth. Um, But it's a way to give that character who's super hard, super like, some kind of narrative where you kind of feel like he's growing. Yeah. If only because of the fact that this child questioned things that he wouldn't question.
1: This actually brings me to another one of my favorite tropes. And I'm just going to fit it in here because it... Works really okay, well. Yeah, I love when there are like tough characters that are actually soft. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like they have tough exteriors, but like they really care about people, or they act really aloof, but they actually deeply care.
0: Yeah,
1: I love that. Like um, I also
0: like this trope. This is I actually think I wrote this one down as well.
1: Like Matthias in Six of Crows. Mm. We we talked about Six of Crows on episode five. I believe, yeah, on episode five. So you guys can go back there to kind of hear the summary. But
0: pretty sure we mentioned it every single episode. But that's when
1: we talk about it in depth. Yeah, (laughs) But Matthias is very much like a super buff, tough guy who his kind of goal is to eradicate a specific kind of people. And then he (laughs) becomes really soft. And I don't know. I I just love him.
0: Brenna. Yeah. (laughs) Matthias is this... You know, he's just this character, you know, his goal is, like, genocide. But, you know, he's, like, he's, he's soft on the inside.
1: <laughs> well, he changes. He, <laughs> he becomes attached to someone and then changes. I mean, I guess you could also look at Kaz this way, but I think Kaz is just really tough. I don't know that he is soft at all, really.
0: He has... Yeah, he has a soft spot. Yeah.
1: He's got a soft spot, but I don't think he's a soft person.
0: So here's my thing. I think that both those characters, Kaz and Matthias, both just have serious, like, repression problems. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, like, they're both very... That's actually one of the... This is this is something... This isn't a trope that I wrote down again, but this is something that I love in a character and is definitely probably... Definitely probably a trope? Probably definitely? Anyways. Um, Redundant. Yeah. Sorry. The trope of a character who is very flawed like, very, like, has something very wrong with them that they struggle with, like...
1: Ah, oh, this is part of the reason why I love Dustfinger.
0: Yeah, like, like, they just, they have, and it's not even, like, I feel like a lot of books, not a lot of books, but some books and some narratives will be, like, the, I think that comic books are especially bad for this, where there are, like, people who, for example, will have, like, a mental illness... But then it turns out that their mental illness is actually a superpower and there's no downsides to their mental illness. That's not that's not the kind of like flaw that I'm talking about. I'm talking about like like a character who literally deals with like post-traumatic stress disorder for the entire book and doesn't get better necessarily like they just deal with it. And it really affects their character, because mm-hmm. um, that's that sort of theme is really interesting to grow, or not well, to see, but and they you don't necessarily grow out of that in the course of a book.
1: And that's part of why Six of Crows is so interesting. Like that entire duology is yeah. so interesting because every one of those characters has some kind of trauma.
0: Yeah. And the and the the author of the book even wrote, Like I had to make a flawed character because I am a flawed human being or something like that. I like, Yeah. I'm,
1: she made Kaz have a limp. Yeah, Isn't a that crutch. Way? Yeah. Yeah.
0: It was something I think she also struggles with it. And she was like, I wanted a, a protagonist who also had to struggle with something that I struggle with. Mm-hmm. And I think that, well, not only is that important in books and video games and really anything because representation, like that is really extreme. Mm-hmm. We have already talked about representation and why it's important. But um, yeah, having characters that have flaws is essentially representation.
1: And having... Because <laughs> like, everyone has flaws. <laughs> those flaws not be... Their punishment or their downfall or, but like actually just be a part of their character that they Mm -hmm. work with. Like,
0: yeah, yeah. Like it's not, it's not, like I said, it's not something that's like secretly a great benefit or something that like literally is like, like I, I'm dying because of this. Like it's like, obviously if they have something that is very serious for that character, there will be times when that character will probably miss opportunities because of the fact of their, their thing that they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Like, one of my favorite things in the book is, like, um when there are scenes where, like, Kaz, the character, he walks with a limp. This is not a spoiler at all. But Kaz, the character, has a limp. And there are times where it seems like it literally doesn't affect him at all. And then there are other times where it does seem like it affects him. Yeah. And And... I, I appreciate that because it means that, like, some days it's easier and some days it's harder, you know? And, Which it
1: just reflects reality.
0: Yeah, because some days it is easier and some days it is harder. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. All right, we went pretty deep into that trope. That <laughs> actually kind of went from one trope to another, but...
0: Yeah, I, I didn't even have that trope written down. Um,
1: I don't so. even know if that's so much a trope as just a well-written
0: character. <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point.
1: But anyway throwing it back over to games what's another one of your favorite game mechanics
0: so another one of my favorite favorite game mechanics is the area control mechanic so this often if you have heard of risk you probably know what area control is um area control is generally these types of board games involve you attempting to control parts of the map in order to, and often the board game is a map that you are trying to control in order to gain influence, in order to gain points, in order to gain resources often. One of the games that we own that I really like, but we don't get to play very often because it's quite long and not everyone else, not everyone is a big fan of area control, I think, as a main game mechanic. Um, But wow, this is taking, I just, you ever like talk and then you're like, wow, it's taken me a long time to get to what I'm trying to say. I do that so often.
1: I'm not going to lie. Often when you talk, I'm like, okay, where is the sentence going? <laughs> yeah, I need help. Okay, you were talking about area control.
0: Oh yeah. Okay. Scythe this is one of my game, one of the games that we like, that I like when it comes to this sort of thing. Another game that I think actually involves area control, but not a lot of people think of it as an area control game is Catan. Like any game where you are trying to own a certain part of the board in order to have access to something. So in Scythe, you control an army and some workers that move around the board and you're trying to gather resources by moving to specific areas of the board where those resources are plentiful and then building buildings there and, you know, kind of building up your army and moving on to earn the most points.
1: There's another game as well that I like that literally the whole game is area control.
0: Oh, what's this? Small World. Oh my gosh, I completely forgot about Small like, World.
1: Like, literally the goal of Small World is to own the most area to get the most points.
0: Yeah, actually, I'm going to use that to explain explain the mechanic better. So, Small World is a game where you start out with a certain number of troops, literally troops. And this is one of the reasons why not a lot of people are into these games, because you are physically, not physically... <laughs> <laughs> You're physically fighting people in these board games. No. Sorry. Um you are the
1: The point of the game is to fight people.
0: Not in all area controls, but it it inevitably happens. In Small World, you get a number of troops, and your goal is literally to come onto the board, move, and take control of as many spaces that you can. And then at the end of your turn, you earn points equal to the number of spaces you control. It's like the most basic form of area control that I can imagine. And then next turn, it's Brenna's turn, and Brenna comes on and tries to take as many spaces as she can, including trying to take spaces away from me so that I have less points next turn. Small World is a very good game. I would recommend checking it out. It also has some asymmetrical components, what I mean by that is not all, you won't, not everyone has access to the exact same abilities.
1: Yeah. Each, each player has their own like individual goal and individual play style.
0: Yeah. Which actually that leads into my next favorite game mechanic, which is asymmetricality or um, varying player powers.
1: This is actually funny because one of my favorite asymmetrical games is Villainous which is based around Disney villains. Each of you plays a Disney villain and gets to have a board tailored to your villain. Mm-hmm. And your goal is tailored to your villain. So for example, Prince John from Robin Hood, his goal is to gain the most money. Or Ursula's goal is to get the the trident and the crown and then defeat Ariel. Like, yeah. It's very, I don't know, I think it's really fun because you get to play with other people and interact with other people, but you all have your own... Yeah.
0: So villainous is actually really interesting because like Brenna said, it is literally completely asymmetrical. If I am playing Dr. Facilier, no one else in the game even has rules like my character, if that makes sense. Like villainous takes it to the extreme. Like some, some games, they're asymmetrical, but you're literally playing on a common board in villainous. There's not even a common board and there are specific contingency rules that apply to each person. I think what Villainous does well is their asymmetricality because every character is completely unique. I think what Villainous does not do well, in my opinion, is actually randomness. It bothers me. This is one of those games where you'll play it for a couple... Like, you'll play it for an hour or an hour and a half if you're playing with four to six people, which it's up to six people, this game. And you can get a sense of... I have very little control over what I can do right now. It really just depends on the cards that I draw. Um, And I've definitely had games where it's been like, all right, I wait 15 minutes for it to get back to me on my turn, and my turn is draw or literally throw away cards from my hand because all I need is one card on my deck and there is only one card. Well, I will
1: say like, I only think Villainous is fun if you're playing with people who are going at a decent pace. Like if you are trying to play with six people and three of those people have not played before, it's probably not going to be fun that time because you're going to be waiting for these people to figure it out, which is fair. It takes time to figure out, but it's more fun when people know what they're doing and it goes faster.
0: Yeah. Villainous is not always my game.
1: (laughs) I know. I'm very aware. Yeah. So what, like what asymmetrical game are you thinking of that you like?
0: I really like, well, for example, Scythe is a great asymmetrical game.
1: Oh, I I didn't even think about Scythe. Like
0: your player boards in Scythe are completely different. Everyone has different access to different kinds of mechs. Although I will say the asymmetricality of Scythe isn't super (laughs) pronounced. Um, another great asymmetrical game is uh, Gloomhaven. We've talked about Gloomhaven lots of times, but Gloomhaven is pretty asymmetrical. Like you're you're working towards a common goal, but like my character is completely different from your character. Even if we achieve the same goal generally, which is to complete the missions, we'll do it in completely different ways, and we'll excel at different things. And I like yeah. that. Yeah, I, I can't think of trying to think of other games that involve asymmetricality that we have played for own. Oh, we actually just got a game. Oh,
1: Final Flick Tier. Final Flick
0: Tier is really asymmetrical. I mean, not really asymmetrical, it's asymmetrical. The player powers are different. They're not. It's a case where it's kind of like Scythe. You're still very much playing the same game.
1: But with different powers and different goals. But with different
0: powers and different goals. Um, a game that is really well known for its asymmetricality, um, and this one is also an area control game, is Root. <laughs> So we've talked about that before. Definitely go check it out. I it's on my wish list. I would love to get that. Speaking of we're talking about wish lists soon. So um, yeah.
1: And he went in depth with Root in episode two, which was our fall recommendation episode.
0: Yes. Yeah. Definitely check out Root if you're into asymmetricality or area control. Yeah. I should check out Root.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's toss it back to book tropes. Cool. What is your next favorite
0: book trope? Um, what have I even said so far? I've said I've said two. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I didn't know about this trope. Until you yeah, searched uh, it? <laughs> yeah, I was Googling tropes online. And I don't know if I've read any books with this in it.
1: Then how do you know that you like it?
0: Because I've played a lot of D&D and this is my favorite thing in D&D.
1: Okay, that works. These tropes apply to more than just books.
0: yeah. So this trope is called a Chekhov's gun, or at least it was on the website. And it's called that that because I believe a person named Chekhov made a quote that was like, if you put a gun on the wall in chapter one, that gun better go off in chapter three.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: It was something like that. But essentially, the idea of this trope is that an insignificant object turns out to be very significant later in the story. So it's essentially just a form of foreshadowing. But this is, it's also just a form of good storytelling. It's basically saying that everything you put in your book should have a purpose for being there.
1: This is actually something that I struggle with when I'm writing.
0: Mm.
1: Like, so Oren will read over my writing and then give me feedback. And like something that you constantly tell me is like, why, why do you name this character if they're not important? Or why do you describe this scene if it has no significance? Like if something is going to be there, it needs to have some kind of payoff.
0: Yeah, I yeah, I I feel bad sometimes cuz
1: No, but it's it's so true. Yeah. Like that is good storytelling. Yeah. You don't want to put meaningless things in your story.
0: Um, Specifically with this trope, though, for me, what I love is actually specifically an item or an object that appears very insignificant, but turns out to be incredibly important later on. Like the idea, for example, of say someone walks past a coin on the ground and they pick it up and they're like, ooh, free dollar. But later on, they find out that that coin, for example, was inscribed on on the side and has like a secret message or something on it. Or what if that coin belonged to someone who was murdered on that street and it's the really important piece of evidence that ties that person to that crime Mm -hmm. you know what I mean like like I really like the idea of objects that are that appear insignificant and then later on become very significant and this shows out in my gameplay in like D&D or role-playing games in that like whenever I whenever I this is a I don't know if this is just me. I don't, haven't talked to a lot of other DMs, but like whenever I design an encounter in D&D, I will specifically think of ways, like literally, I don't think I, I think through anything else so thoroughly. I will specifically think of ways to put in items That later on might be very important or I will think of ways to like make sure that like if you do choose to explore that area there is some form of a payoff for you and I actually go into the go so far to have like varying degrees of success like if you if you explore it super thoroughly or if you think really out of the box like I'm trying to think when I come up with stuff here's an item that you'll find and it's rare and it's cool and it's awesome i just like the idea of items in anD i like magical objects i, think I just cool. thought of
1: like a really good example for this from books so you know it's like in harry potter in the very first book for christmas dumbledore gives him an invisibility cloak oh. which comes in really handy and then you find out in like the sixth book guess what it's like the invisibility cloak yeah like yeah it is like the cloak that blocks you from death.
0: Yeah, literally. And, and I mean, obviously when he gets it, he's super excited about it.
1: But he doesn't know it's But he doesn't know.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's a very perfect example of that trope.
1: Because yeah. it doesn't
0: even have to be something that no one is excited about. It could be something that you get excited about, but you don't actually realize how important this object is. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. What's your next trope? Or talking? We're still talking. Yeah. Trope.
1: Yeah. My next trope is (laughs) fake dating. (laughs) I love the fake dating trope. And I actually haven't read, because I I don't read a lot of romance books. I'm trying to get more into them, but I haven't read a lot yet. So I see this more in movies, I think, than in books. But one book that it is in for sure is To All the Boys I've Loved Before by Jenny Han, which we talked about on episode eight.
0: Which is also a Netflix adaptation.
1: (laughs) It is a Netflix adaptation, that is true. And um, there's also fake dating in Lair of Dreams by Libba Bray, Mm. which I talked about on episode six. So I like these because I like the tension that builds up between people when it's, like, they actually like each other or they don't start out liking each other, but because they're fake dating, they start to develop feelings, but then there's this tension because it's supposed to be fake, but it's actually real and, like... Yeah. (laughs) I love that.
0: Yeah. Has anyone done a book that does the... Or a book or even a movie that does, like, this trope, but... You know how... You know the concept of having a beard? Yes. Like for like if you are part of the like queer community yes you might need a person or employ a person or just have a person who is your friend who helps you out by appearing straight
1: It's funny that you bring that up because my other example sorry I cut you off No oh, go ahead Well it literally just is beards Yeah is my other example, in The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. So it's, this book is about uh, a reporter named Monique Grant gets to interview like this famous Hollywood film star named Evelyn Hugo, who is partially famous because she's had seven husbands. So Monique gets to interview her and find out like the truth about her scandalous and fabulous life. Mm -hmm. And what comes out is this story of Like she's actually in love with another woman and one of her fake husbands is in love with another man and they lived side by side, but pretended to live with the other person's lover. Does that make sense? So it was like fake dating or fake marriage even, but specifically to mask each other's true relationship. So.
0: Yeah. I, this, this idea is the more I think about it, the less, I don't know. What, I wonder if there's, like, a book or a movie that does, like, fake dating, except it's, like, beard fake dating, except they don't fall for the beard. They fall, like, what if the beard was, like, a gay beard? I don't know how to explain it. Like, what if you needed to appear gay? This is why this doesn't really, oh, like, this um, this doesn't work in a heteronormative society no, like there ours. Is, but.
1: There is a TV show called Faking It where, oh. <laughs> <laughs> literally, oh. where the high school is like, it is cool to be queer at this high school, and so these two best friends pretend to date, and then they actually develop feelings for each other.
0: Cool. Yeah, that was that was what I was trying to say.
1: Oh, well, sorry. What if you
0: needed a beard, but a queered beard?
1: A queer beard? Queered
0: beard. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh.
1: Ew, I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, it's okay. I love you. I love you, too. Okay, no more grossness. Go back to, <laughs> to game mechanics.
0: Um, what's your next favorite game mechanic, babe?
1: My last one on my list is Tile Placement.
0: Ooh, good. Which
1: is, like, exactly what it sounds like. You place tiles.
0: This is also one of my favorites. Oh, really? It's on my list. Yeah.
1: So, like, one of the games that I thought of for Tile Placement, there's a game called Lanterns, where you are placing floating lanterns and you're trying to get points by placing them in specific areas like you have to match colors and you get extra points by like matching more than one color or matching colors with these specific squares on them Mm -hmm. but i just i find it so fun to like it's it's simple but it makes you think at the same time yeah that's why i like it
0: yeah another game that does this although i don't know if you actually like this game very much is called carcassonne
1: No, I like Carcassonne.
0: Lots of people probably know what Carcassonne is, but if you do not know what Carcassonne is, it is a game, I believe it's actually made by the same people who made Catan for some reason. That may be completely untrue. But regardless, um, it is a game where you place tiles to build essentially like a fantasy province. And in that province, there are towns and cities and rivers and lakes and roads. And you are trying to get points by being the one who completes the cities or completes the roads. And there's also worker placement in this game where you're placing workers on the map to get more points at the end of the game for having them in the right places. Overall, Carcassonne is a very fun game. Um, Another game that we've talked about briefly, uh, maybe more in depth, and that I'm excited about that involves tile placement is... Tang Garden, which we're getting soon. Very excited for that one. It's about building a garden. I generally like this mechanic because I like when I'm building things.
1: You just like... I'm so simple. You're literally like, you love just creating things in general. Like, this is so in with your personality.
0: (laughs) I am a very simple human. You give me Lego, I have fun. You give me tile, I have fun. You give me blank sheet, I create. Oh, I'm such a nerd. (laughs) What was I going to say? And sort of an extension of this type of mechanic goes into something called board expansion or board retraction. Sorry. And what that means is you are actually... um, physically expanding the board by placing tiles on the board. One of, maybe an example that I could use to describe this would be the expansion Catan Seafarers or Seafarers of Catan is actually, I played that game a lot. And when when Seafarers came out, I loved that expansion because what you could do is you could place essentially random hidden islands off in the ocean that you could go and explore and discover. And I love the idea of, kind of expanding the board through gameplay and getting rewarded for expanding the board. I also have always wanted to create a board game that involves this mechanic, so. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Everyone you create has, it has some tile form placement.
0: Of, some form of expansion or exploration yeah. or tile placement, which turns into a, like, board expansion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh! We didn't even talk about another one that does this, Betrayal at House on the Hill.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. That we mentioned on our Spooky Books and Games episode. We talk about Betrayal. Yeah. That's really fun, too.
0: Yeah, although it's not quite tile placement, not like Carcassonne or... No,
1: it's more, but it's still exploration. Like, you get to flip up a new room every turn and...
0: And you are placing a tile. You do get some degree of, I guess, decision there, deciding which way the doors face, but it doesn't really feel like it when you're doing it.
1: Well, it's not really in Betrayal. It's not necessarily like strategic to place your tile. It's just like you got to put it somewhere.
0: Yeah. So yeah.
1: yeah. Cool. Back to tropes. Okay. Did you have another book trope that you like?
0: Yes. This is another one that I didn't know existed until I looked it up. Mm-hmm. But this one I've actually seen in a book. And I think it's a fairly common trope. So I think a lot of people like this trope. This on the website was called an anachronic order. Okay. Or anachronic. Anachronic.
1: I don't know how you say that word.
0: Yeah. It's anyway. out of order. Yeah. Yeah. Out of order chronologies. So many big words. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like an, a book that does this is uh, right now we're listening to. I Well, we don't know if this book does this, but right now we're listening to N.K. Jemisin's The Fifth Season. And at least it feels to me like there is an anach- <sighs> out of order timelines happening here where you're kind of jumping forward and backwards in time, though you don't actually know which way you're jumping.
1: I don't think we can use this as an example because we don't actually know.
0: I feel like we are. But there's even, there's hints that the author gives in this book to make you feel like you are jumping forward in time. Like even a change in first person to second person and back and forth.
1: I don't get that vibe from it. We need like a physical copy so we can see what the chapter headings are.
0: I'm also almost 100% certain... I'll go out and say it right now. When we finish this book, we're gonna come on this podcast, and we're gonna and Brenna's gonna be like, "Fine, you were right. It was, it was in anachronic order."
1: <laughs> but this is really common. Like there is a form of storytelling where, <laughs> okay, this is not a book, but we watched The Emperor's New Groove last night, <laughs> and it is told out of order because starts
0: with him in the. It starts
1: in the middle of a story when he's being all sad and rained on in the woods and then it goes back to the beginning of the story and then quite um catches up to him and then moves forward and it's called like that specific story structure is called the e story structure Mm because if you if you write it out like an e yeah you start out at like the the connecting point of the e yeah and then you go all the way back to the beginning and then you go forward in time
0: yeah i think another book that actually does this really well is another book that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, which is The Night Circus. The Night Circus also has some, well, not only are there characters in there who I guess can kind of, who there's like some form of, Sorry, in the book, there are people who attempt to see the future. And so you not only get kind of like a lot of foreshadowing from that, but there's also sort of a separate part happening along with the book. I don't want to spoil anything, but there's sort of multiple points of view. Mm -hmm. And later on in the book, it...
1: Well, you get to see how the circus comes together. Yeah. But at the same time, you get to see kind of the present day storyline of what's happening in the circus.
0: Yeah. There's almost like, yeah, there's multiple points of view, and there's points of view in the past, and points of view in the future, and points of view in the present, and then points of view that don't really exist in time. Like, we've talked about these already, but there are parts of the book where it's just describing you walking through the night circus, and those have literally nothing to do with the story, and also don't seem to exist within the time of the story.
1: It's just like a second-person chapter that's sole purpose is... To draw you in further.
0: Yeah. And and I really think that... Because there are parts of this... Yeah. Like I said, there are parts of this book that happened in the past. Parts of this book that happen in the present. Yeah. Uh, and, and so much play with time is had in this book that it almost makes you feel like time is very abstract sometimes, mm-hmm. which I think adds to the feeling. Because one of the feelings that is very described upon in this book is
1: described the... Upon.
0: Described upon? Or... <laughs> how would you say it? one of the feelings that is invoked? Sure one of the feelings that is invoked or evoked stated about that people feel when they're in the night circus is a feeling of timelessness while they're there um, or even a feeling of not enough time so yeah yeah,
1: yeah that's a good one
0: so yeah
1: <laughs> hey, my last favorite trope this is the last thing I have on my list cool. I'm is done chosen families or found families oh I love this trope so much because I firmly believe that family is not only dependent on biology. Oh, yeah. Like family can be people that you have known for a long time or people that you meet and you just immediately click with. And six of crows is like amazing for this. Like the six of them are in no way related, but they are a
0: family. Yeah, You know? Yeah.
1: And I love that.
0: And, like, the same thing, like, even if you go back and back in time, like, Lord of the Rings, Mm -hmm. like, they are a family, you know? And there are multiple family, even family groups within the larger family of the Fellowship, even. Like, like the family, I guess, the brothership of Sam and... And Frodo. And Frodo, brothership.
1: (laughs) Just, like, the bond between those two, or the bond between Merry and Pippin.
0: Or the bond between Merry, Pippin, and the three kind of rangers, you know? I guess the rangers between... They're humans.
1: They're not all... Only one of them is a ranger.
0: (laughs) They're not even all human. Two of them are... One of them is an elf and one of them is a dwarf. who are you
1: talking about?
0: I'm talking about between Pippin and, like, the... Pippin and Merry and, like...
1: Legolas and Gimli? Legolas, Gimli,
0: Gimli and Aragorn.
1: I thought you meant, like, Aragorn and Boromir, but then who would the third one be? I don't know.
0: Yeah, you're right. I mean, but even Boromir like is a part of the family and like, I don't know where I was going with this, but I was going to be like, and like they'd struggle with him, you know, like he, he's a, he is a show of the weakness of humankind to the temptation of the ring.
1: But then by the end,
0: when he dies and it's 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 so,
1: oh, my heart.
0: Spoiler alert. This book was released years and years ago. If you you haven't read it.
1: I'm sorry. If I just spoiled Lord of the Rings for you, yes, should have watched it already (laughs) or read the books. We have to be
0: sensitive to our young audiences.
1: Oh, I'm sorry, young listeners. Anyway, speaking of... Speaking of classic tales, um The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton is also a really good found family story. I mean, in that one three of them are actually family, they're brothers, but it's more than that because it's like so The Outsiders is about this clash between the greasers, which are like the down and out underdogs and the socs who are like the rich people that live on the other side of the tracks. And it's a story about the clashes between those two. And there's like a main group of greasers who are family. They're not all related, three of them are, but they're really close to each other, and they would do anything for each other, and you see that throughout the course of the story.
0: Stay golden, pony boy.
1: Exactly. Here's another one for you that you love, The Perks of Being a Wallflower by Stephen Chbosky.
0: (gasps) (gasps) This was soul crushing, but also soul soaring at the same time.
1: And it's also such like a chosen family book. Because it's about a high school student named Charlie who at the beginning is dealing with, like, the suicide of his best friend and also some trauma from his past. And he's kind of awkward at school, but these older students, um, including a sibling pair named Sam and Patrick, kind of, like, adopt him Mm -hmm. and then help him get involved in student life. And they kind of take him into their friend group. And it's really sweet.
0: I will forever... I forever assign emotional meaning to the song we are heroes by what is his name
1: David Bowie David Bowie I
0: I didn't used to like assign emotional meaning to it but ever since I saw the film I now assign very emotional like I get very emotional when I hear that song now just because of I guess that film and like that time in my life when I watched it mm-hmm. and tried to read it at the same time like I just like I don't even know like I've definitely heard criticisms about Perks of Will- being a wallflower, but like just for me in that time of my life, like it was very impactful for me.
1: I think it was for a lot of people.
0: Yeah. There's there's only a couple books and movies that are that have really impacted me, you know? There's the Harry Potter series, Perks of being a wallflower, Frozen, you know, like these are the these are the medias that have really impacted me as a human being.
1: I can't tell if you're being serious. No, I'm
0: being be- very serious right now. These are the there are, these were, like, times in my lives where those medias, like, very much affected me.
1: I didn't know Frozen meant so much to you.
0: It doesn't really anymore, but there was a time in my life where Frozen, like, when it was there and I was in this kind of part of my life where I was trying to, I guess, break out of my old ways or even just kind of discover who I was. Hmm. Uh, and I really resonated with Elsa's story, which is so weird and... um. Sounds so basic. I'm just, I'm just an Elsa, you know, with repressed magic inside me and I just <laughs> need to let it out. Or you could say, let it go. Um,
1: okay. <laughs> we should move on to our recommendations of the week.
0: Yeah, we should. This is getting <laughs> too deep. yeah uh, my honorable mention of Recommendation of the Week is not too, not too Deep, the podcast by Grace Helbig, where she doesn't get too deep with all of her, yeah, podcast people.
1: Really? No, I'm joking. I just... Does she actually have a podcast? Yeah, it's called Not Too Deep. Oh, I didn't know that. With
0: Grace Helbig. Um, Fluza. Fluva?
1: Yeah, Flula.
0: Flula made the the intro and it's like, not too deep. It's great. I cannot do his accent. Please don't. Please forgive me if that sounded racist. <laughs>
1: Okay, what's your actual recommendation, not your honorable mention?
0: So my recommendation of the week right now is a board game that is on Kickstarter, and it will still be on Kickstarter by the time you can listen to this. It is called Divinity Original Sin. So this is actually, it's the first board game. It's actually a board game adaptation of a video game series that has been around for a long time. The video game series is made by a company that is has made all of the Divinity series, but is also working on the newest Baldur's Gate um video game which is a video game based out of the D&D universe. These are very narrative driven RPG games that are usually played online or not online that are single player but they're played on a computer, I guess what I'm saying. This is being made into a board game by a Canadian company and I was looking into what they're doing and they're trying to create a legacy game that you do not have to permanently alter in order to experience a story. Interesting. And so they are creating a different way to play a legacy game, which seems really cool to me. So I would definitely recommend checking this out. The other thing about it that seems really good to me is that this game is, has a lot of uh, tact, tactfulness to it and depth to it, but it also seems very intuitive from what I've seen. It seems like you don't need to know a lot about an RPG game or RPG game system to hop into it and understand what's happening around you. I think the way that they're implementing cooldowns and energy costs and even like the grid map, which is done completely different from any other grid map I've ever seen, is done really well. And I think it would be, it looks very intuitive. So good job, Canadian game makers that I do not remember your name. Check out their game on Kickstarter, Divinity Original Sin.
1: Nice. My recommendation of the week was going to be something and now it is Black Sales. (laughs) Black Sails is such a good TV show. It's a stars show. Um, I've been obsessed with pirates for like my whole life. I don't know why it took me so long to watch Black Sails, but I finally did. And I love it.
0: Black Sails is so good.
1: It has pretty good representation. It has really compelling storylines and you can really argue about what happens in it. Like, there are different ways to view what happens in it. I will say, though, that do not watch the show, like, trigger warning for gore, violence, sexual violence, foul language. Like, it is not a it is not a show to watch if you are squeamish.
0: But it is a show to watch if you like good storytelling and really compelling characters. <laughs> yes. The um, compelling
1: characters is, like, that is why I love the show so much.
0: Yes, um, this is not a trope that we talked about today, but one of the reasons that I love Black Sails so much is the moral gray area that these pirates live in. Oh, yeah. And live with every single day, you mm-hmm. know? Um,
1: or, and, like, another one is, like, having the characters that you root for do something horrible. Yeah. Or the characters that you think are horrible do something good. Yeah. Like, you know? I love that kind of it's, exploration.
0: It's the, it, it really deals with the idea of, like, How far is too far in a lawless society? Like, if we didn't really have, you know, like, obviously...
1: And how far is too far to go for a morally good cause? Yeah, exactly.
0: Do the means justify the ends? Does What does it mean when you are the person who makes the rules? Yeah. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, it's a good show.
0: Great recommendation.
1: Also, that's the show we watched on our first date, so... Ooh... (laughs)
0: Good for our relationship. This was like else,
1: a messed up show to who watch. Who else
0: can say, yeah, on our first date, we got together and watched people, pirates, try to kill each other.
1: <laughs> so romantic.
0: I mean, I guess if you watched Pirates of the Caribbean. No, I'm joking.
1: Pirates of the Caribbean is like a much tamer version of oh, Black yes, Sails.
0: Absolutely. There is very little comparison between Black Sails and Pirates of the Caribbean. Anyways.
1: Thank you for listening to episode 11 of The Hobby Shelf. We hope you enjoyed it, and we would greatly appreciate if you would click that subscribe button and leave us a review so other people can
0: find us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at The Hobby Shelf, or you can send us an email at Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at the slash thehobbyshelf. All the books and games that we mentioned will be in the show notes, along with our recommendations of the week.
1: We are grateful to record this podcast on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Soutina, the Stony Nakoda Nations, the Métis Nation of Region 3, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta, where we live, play, and work.
0: Listen to our next episode, where we talk about our wish lists for Christmas. Whew, mine is very long. Um, (laughs) And remember, keep expanding your shelf.